you know, what to have for dinner, those kinds of things. But some of those choices are really big choices. They have a lot of consequences. They make a long-term impact on our life. Who do I marry? When should I retire? Where should I work? Where should I give financially? Where should I invest financially? Where should I go to school? What should I major in? Should I change jobs? Should I move to a new city? Should I have more children? Should I buy a new car? Those are big choices that have lasting consequences. And there's no Bible passage that you can turn to that will tell you exactly what choice to make in those situations. You have to make a choice. So we've been focusing our attention on what the Bible says about how to make great life giving choices. And last week, we established that those choices are really governed by one critical question, and that question is this, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be? Not what do I want to do or what do I want to accomplish, but who do I want to be? What do I want my character and heart posture to be at the end of my life? And that a true north, that a preferred destination, determines the choices that we make in the here and now. And now that we've established true north, today we're going to take a look at one biblical concept that helps us to make choices to lead us toward that preferred destination. And that biblical concept is called wisdom. It's wisdom. I absolutely love that story that Nigel told that you heard on the video just now. I mean, can you picture this? This guy is attempting to, uh, sing, he's single-handing a yacht, and he's attempting to tie it off onto a buoy, or if you're from South Africa, a buoy, apparently, but, he's, uh, but I'm from the U.S., so we call it a buoy. And so four or five times, Nigel and his friend watch this guy make the same mistake. His approach isn't right. His angle isn't right. And each time, he fails to accomplish his goal. But rather than thinking it through, rather than asking for help, he gets frustrated and tries something completely completely outlandish. He tries to leap out of his sailboat into a rowboat and simultaneously grab the buoy and, and tie off his boat while controlling a really big heavy yacht by himself and the rowboat at the same time. And believe it or not, that plan does not work. Shocker. And so he's left hanging, out, uh, hanging on the front of a sailboat that is now careening across the water out of control and he needs rescue. But let me just encourage us this morning not to be too quick to throw stones at our friend here, not to be too quick to make fun of him because maybe you've never done this in a boat, but you've done it in life, I guarantee you. I know that you have because I have too. You know, you try to execute a plan, a plan to lose weight or a plan to change your dating habits or a plan to save money or a plan uh, for self-improvement or a plan for a time management strategy, and it's the same plan as before. But this time, you're going to work harder, right? This time, you're more committed to it. It's going to work this time. I just know it. I know I failed the first four or five times, but this time, it's going to work. And you know what? It's not going to work this time. You know why? Because nothing has changed. Because history tends to repeat itself. You've heard one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. You know the Bible has a word for those folks like our friend in his sailboat and like us and like me, by the way. And that word is fool. Fool. The Bible calls us fools. And the Bible's not trying to be rude here. I just want you to know that. It's just calling a spade a spade because the word foolish simply means lacking good sense or judgment 
or unwise. And we are all a little bit that way sometimes. We all lack judgment sometimes. We all make unwise choices. We all, unfortunately, have a little bit of fool in us. But the Bible doesn't stop there at just diagnosing the problem. And I'm so glad. Do you have people in your life that do that? They're, they're really quick to diagnose a problem, but they don't offer any solution at all. You have you ever had those people in your life? You know, you try to start your car and it doesn't start. And your, you know, your really helpful friend goes, well, it looks like uh, your car's not starting. Thank you. I knew that. I'm sitting in the car. I need you to offer a solution. That's, and the great news is the Bible does not do that. The Bible doesn't just diagnose our problem and say that we can be foolish sometimes. The Bible helps us to solve our problem, and the solution is this. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. That's the solution to this problem we have of making unwise choices. The dictionary defines wisdom this way. It's up here on the screen. It says, having the power of discerning and judging properly as to what is true or right. Possessing discernment, judgment, or discretion. That's an absolutely great definition of wisdom because notice that wisdom isn't about knowledge. Wisdom isn't about knowing the facts. Wisdom isn't about even experience. Wisdom is the ability to collect those facts and experience and apply them to a specific situation in order to discern the best course of action. Let's say it this way this morning. Wisdom is this. Facts plus experience in order to determine the best course of action. It's collecting what I know. This is wisdom. Collecting what I know and collecting what I've been through, putting those things together in order to determine the best course of action, the wise choice. Remember that our unwise sailor that we just heard a story about had knowledge. He wouldn't have been single-handing a yacht if he didn't have knowledge. He had experience. Again, he wouldn't have been single-handing a yacht if he didn't have experience. He just failed to put those together and determine the best course of action. He failed to apply his knowledge and experience. He was not wise. We talked about Solomon last week. Solomon was the third king in Israel. He had more possessions than you and I could ever dream of. He did stuff that you and I would never do, but he was also great at collecting facts and experience in order to determine the best course of action. He didn't always do that, but he still had the ability, a unique ability, a God-given ability to do that. Solomon was very, very wise. So today we're going to take a look at what Solomon says about wisdom, about this concept of taking facts and experience, putting them together in order to determine the best course of action. We'll be in Proverbs chapter 1. If you uh, have your Bible, you can turn there, but I want you to know that we're going to be reading from the message version of the Bible. And so you probably didn't bring the message version of the Bible with you to church this morning. If you did, let me know and I'll get you a new Bible, okay? But I do love the way that the message puts this concept from Proverbs chapter 1 into very modern and understandable language. Look up here on the screen. This is what Solomon writes about wisdom. He says, Lady Wisdom goes out in the street and shouts. At the town center, she makes her speech. In the middle of traffic, she takes her stand. At the busiest corner, 
she calls out. I want you to see two things that Solomon is saying about wisdom here. The first is this. In ancient Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament loved wisdom. They loved this idea of being wise. Not just knowing facts, not just being experienced, just as Nigel said, just because, just because you're experienced does not mean you're Wise And so the nation of Israel, God's people, loved this idea. And they loved the idea of wisdom so much that they personified wisdom. Wisdom, Solomon talks about in Proverbs 1, is, is, is given a, 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 per, a persona. He talks about her as lady wisdom. That's how much they loved wisdom. Men of God, it should make total sense to you why wisdom is female, by the way. I don't need to tell you any more about that. The other thing that Solomon wants us to know here is that wisdom isn't trying to hide. Did you notice that? Wisdom isn't trying to hide. Wisdom shouts in the street, at the town center, in traffic, and at the busiest corner. Wisdom is available and accessible to us. But Solomon says that we reject it. And there are three kinds of people that reject wisdom. Look what Solomon says in verse 22. He says, simpletons. How long will you wallow in ignorance? Cynics, how long will you feed your cynicism? Fools, how long will you refuse to learn? Did you see those three types of people that reject wisdom? Simpletons, cynics, and fools. We're going to talk briefly about all three. If we go back to our definition of wisdom as knowledge or facts plus experience equals the best course of action, the simpleton is missing the facts and experience part. The simpleton is naive. The simpleton simply doesn't know. They don't have experience. They don't know everything there is to know. They're not bad. They're not wrong. They just lack knowledge and experience. The simpleton tends to be young. For example, a 15-year-old would not be able to tell us what is a wise choice in a marriage because a 15-year-old lacks the requisite knowledge and experience in order to determine the best course of action. At least we hope that a 15-year-old lacks the requisite knowledge and experience when it comes to marriage. Simpletons simply don't have knowledge and experience. And we're going to talk to simpletons in, in two weeks. Those who are naive, those who are young, and we've all got a little bit of simpleton in us in different areas of life. We're going to talk to you directly in two weeks. Let's keep going. Solomon says the second unwise person is the cynic. In other translations, Solomon calls this person a mocker. The cynic simply rejects the best course of action just because he's cynical. The cynic mocks, criticizes, and snubs his or her nose at the best course of action. The cynic tends to be arrogant and resistant. The, the cynic tends to resist and even ridicule wise counsel. The cynic tends to be a know-it-all. Does anybody have a cynic in their life? Don't nudge your spouse if it's your spouse, okay? Maybe, maybe the cynic has a lot of knowledge. Maybe the cynic has a lot of experience, but they reject the best course of action. So that person is not wise. And so Solomon instructs us as to how to respond to cynics and mockers in Proverbs chapter 9. Look what he says. He says, do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Don't rebuke cynics or they will hate you. Mockers and cynics hate wisdom. They hate correction. They hate help. 
they really don't want the best course of action anyway. They just want to be right. Unfortunately, the only thing that can change a cynic's mind or can change a mocker's mind is disaster. When life comes off the rails, when calamity hits, all of a sudden a cynic is willing to listen to wisdom. All of a sudden a cynic isn't mocking wisdom anymore. We can't correct mockers. Only calamity can do that. And we're going to talk to simpletons in two weeks. So let's look at this third type of person that rejects wisdom, and that's the fool. And again, we all have a little bit of fool in us. The fool has facts and experience, but something happens right here with the fool. Something happens right there at that equal sign. The fool has facts and experience, but the fool fails for some reason to apply those facts and experience in order to determine the best course of action. Again, look back at our sailor. He had facts. He had experience. He just failed to apply them and make a wise choice. Again, we all have a little bit of fool in us. Have you ever thought to yourself in life, you know what? I look back on that choice, I look back on that decision, I look back on that course of action that I took, and I should have known better. You ever thought that to yourself? You know what? Here's the reality. You probably did know better. (laughs) You just failed to apply the facts and experience that you had. I've done that. Or have you ever thought to yourself, I have no idea how I ended up here in my life. I have no idea how I ended up here in my relationships. I have no idea how I ended up here in my financial life. I have no idea how I ended up here emotionally or spiritually or physically. Again, the likelihood is that if you really thought about it and you were honest with yourself, you know exactly how you ended up there. (laughs) You made a series of foolish choices where you didn't apply your knowledge and experience. You have knowledge. You have experience. Sometimes we just fail to apply our knowledge and experience in order to determine the best course of action. So what does Lady Wisdom say to you and me? What does Lady Wisdom say to the fool? Keep reading. Look up here on the screen. Lady Wisdom says, about face, I can revise your life. Look, I'm ready to pour out my spirit on you. I'm ready to tell you all I know. Now, this is great news. This is great news for those who have a little bit of fool in them like I do. God is ready to help the fools change and become wise. And not just a little bit, a lot. Wisdom can change your life. Wisdom can radically shift your life trajectory. Wisdom can change your choices for the better. Wisdom can bring clarity and peace in the midst of confusion and clouds. And wisdom isn't hiding somewhere off in the bushes. Remember, Lady Wisdom is on the street corner in traffic shouting, Come and learn from me. But what does it take? It takes an about face. It takes a turning around. It takes a realignment of my life in order to listen to wisdom. So how do I do that? How do I incline my ear to wisdom? How do I stop being foolish? How do I adjust the way that I make choices such that I'm able to, remember, apply my knowledge and experience in order to determine the best course of action? In other other words, 
how do I wise up? There are probably a hundred ways that you can do that, but we're going to talk about one today. One point of application that will radically change your choices for the better. And again, it's in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. Again, Solomon is writing here, and he writes this. He says, whoever is patient has great understanding. Whoever is patient has great understanding. Would you read that with me? Whoever is patient has great understanding. And one more time, kind of with enthusiasm here. You ready? Whoever is patient has great understanding. I said one more time. I lied. Okay? Whoever is patient, one more time. Whoever is has great. Solomon tells us that patience is the key to unlocking wisdom. Patience is the key to unlocking wisdom. There's another version of the Bible, another translation of Scripture, and Solomon says this, he that is patient is very wise, and he that is impatient is very Foolish. That's just a different translation of the original Hebrew that your Bible was written in. He that is patient is very wise. Solomon is saying that patience is the key to unlocking wisdom. Choices made in haste, impetuous choices, quick choices, knee-jerk reactions, hurried choices, rushed choices. These are rarely wise choices, are they not? But the patient man or woman, the one who waits and assesses the situation, the one who does due diligence, the one who takes time to think it all through has a much better chance of making wise choices. Now, I think we know this, right? Like intuitively, I think we know because we look back on our life and very few of us think, you know what? Those choices that I really rushed into, those things that I hurried through, those were really great choices. Most of us don't think that. I don't think that of myself. Those things that I rushed into uh, a lot of time tend to be my most foolish choices and the things I took my time on things to, tend to be the things that are the most wise choices that I made. But for whatever reason, we still lack patience. We still lack patience. We know this, but we still lack it. So let's talk quickly about how patience can factor into our decision-making process. Look up here on the screen. And and this is just a real simple kind of look at the decision-making process. Imagine that this yellow line here, up here on the screens behind me or up here on the TV beside me, this yellow line here is kind of a timeline of your decision-making process. It's a timeline of how choices present themselves and how you make choices. And the first thing that happens in that decision-making timeline is that you come to a fork in the road. You come to a fork in the road. You're faced with a choice. Take this job or that job. Propose to this girl or don't propose to this girl. Hopefully it's not propose to this girl or that girl because that's a bad fork. Okay. Buy a car or don't buy a car. Move to this city or stay where I'm at. Whatever it is, you're faced with a choice. You come to a fork in the road. And once you evaluate your options, once you take a look, the second thing that happens is that you choose. You make your choice. And and that presentation of a choice and your actual choice, those are not simultaneous events. The first thing that happens is you're presented and there's some length of time before you actually choose. And then the third thing that happens is this, you act. 
you act on your choice. Again, choosing and acting are not simultaneous events. Think of it this way. You don't choose to buy a car and buy a car in the exact same moment, do you? You make a choice, and then eventually you act on that choice. So here's what happens in the decision-making process. You come to a fork in the road, then you choose, and then you act on your choice. So when Solomon says the patient man has great understanding, here's what he's telling us to do. He's telling us to extend the gaps. He's telling us to extend the gaps. He's telling us to take maximum time between when we're presented with a choice and when we actually make a choice. Take maximum time between making a choice and acting on your choice. Be patient because the patient man has what? Great understanding. But here's the bummer. We don't really want to extend the gaps, do we? We don't really want to be patient. And get this, this is not, this is not dilly-dally. This is not procrastinate. This is not sit on your hands. It's simply being patient in the decision-making process. But we don't want it. You know why? Because we live in a drive-through, buy-on-credit, same-day delivery, fast-paced culture, don't we? And we want it now. When we're presented with a choice, we want to get it done and act on it right away. We don't want to be patient. And you can do that. You can be impatient in your life choices if you want to. I'm not going to govern your life. No army is going to govern your life. You can be impatient if you want to, but I will just tell you this, that if you're impatient, typically that is not going to result in wise life choices. And we do know this, that patience breeds great choices, but our corrupted thinking sometimes gets in the way of patience. We adopt a mindset that makes for hasty and unwise, impatient choices. Let's talk about a couple of those mindsets. The first mindset that gets in the way of making patient and wise choices is the FOMO mindset. FOMO. For those of you who are not familiar, FOMO is the ancient Hebrew word for I panic and I think everyone is hanging out without me. That's actually not true. FOMO means fear of missing out. <laughs> fear of missing out. How many have heard that word before, FOMO? Have you heard the word FOMO before? Yeah. How many of you know somebody with FOMO? My wife has FOMO real bad. She has FOMO. I'll tell you a story about her in a minute. A woman named Sherry Turkle, she's an MIT professor. She actually coined this term FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, this person is perpetually thinking that if they don't stay up later or get to that concert or attend that party or date that person or make that purchase, they are going to miss out. And missing out on anything is their worst fear. When FOMO grips them, they make hasty choices because they're afraid that life is going to pass them by. FOMO is aggravated by social media because they get on Facebook and they compare somebody else's highlight reel to their behind the scenes. And everyone loses in the comparison game and they make very hasty and very unwise choices because they don't want to miss out. They've got the FOMO, fear of missing out. Do you know that FOMO was actually behind the very first unwise choice? Did you know that? The serpent came to Eve and said, eat this and you will be what? Like God. Oh, I'm missing out on something. And so she took it. FOMO. FOMO is a really bad way to make choices. FOMO people. 
Here's what patience does for you in terms of making great choices. When you step back, when you give it time, you give yourself the opportunity to ask this critical question. What if? What if? Listen close now, FOMO people. What if God has something better for me? And he does, according to the scripture, by the way. What if he's created a kingdom when the last will, where the last will be first and the first will be last? What if the choice I'm about to make is motivated by a fear of missing out rather than motivated by my status in God? Is that wise? What if what I think I'm missing out on isn't really all that great anyway? What if? But if you aren't patient in choices, FOMO people, you don't have time to ask that question, what if? Like I said, my wife, my wife has FOMO. It's tough living with someone with FOMO. There's no medication for FOMO. You just got FOMO. You live with it. Amy and I uh, were once given a stay in, in Kauai, in Hawaii, and someone gifted us, and we said, you know what, let me pray about it. Sure, uh, we'll go. And so we went to Kauai, and we're staying at this timeshare, and they presented us with the opportunity to go hear about purchasing a timeshare. Have you, have you ever done one of these things before? All right, so they said they promised us $200 cash, and we thought, you know what, it's just good stewardship. We should go. We should go to the sales presentation. They're going to give us $200 cash. She had just quit her full-time job. I was very, very new in ministry, so we had absolutely zero money. So we decided beforehand, we are not purchasing a timeshare today. We are going to say no emphatically, and then we're going to leave with $200 in our pocket. So that's what we did. We went. They presented. We listened politely. And then the salesperson finished his pitch, and he said this. I'm going to get up from this chair. I'm going to lean it up against the table. I'm going to walk away, give you guys an opportunity to have a conversation and talk about whether or not you want to make this choice today. And I said, you know, I'm thinking to myself, we're not doing this anyway, but whatever. If this is part of the shtick, I'll let you do it. So he leans his chair up. He walks away. I looked at Amy, and I said, look, we've already made this choice. We chose beforehand. We don't need time to think this over. The answer is simply no. And literally, this is exactly what happened. My wife bursts into tears. She just starts weeping. And she literally says this, if we don't do this, I don't ever want to talk about travel ever again. We're going to be stuck in Arizona forever. And now we live in Canada. <laughs> I did ask my wife permission to share that story, by the way. I did ask my wife permission. You know why she responded that way? FOMO. Fear of missing out. She did not want to miss out on that opportunity. Would it have been wrong to buy a timeshare? Nope. Would it have been immoral or unbiblical? Nope. But it would have been very, very unwise. But instead of making that unwise choice and letting FOMO govern our choice or our decision-making process and letting FOMO govern our choice, we stepped back. We extended the gap between being presented with a choice and making the choice. Do you see it? We were patient, and we were able to ask the question just right there, just an easy one, what if? What if? And if you ask my wife today if she feels there's anything she's missed out on in life that she could have purchased that day, she would tell you no 
way. No way, I've not missed out on anything. That would have been a very unwise choice. But you don't get the opportunity to ask that question unless you are patient. The next mindset that's an enemy to patience is the YOLO mindset. YOLO. You only live once, baby. YOLO. Take advantage of every opportunity, throw caution to the wind, forget the consequences, and just live it up. Can I just stop here and correct something, by the way? YOLO is garbage because you do live twice, once here and once in the next life. And how you choose in this life makes a difference for the life to come. But YOLO can be the catalyst for very unwise, impatient, hasty choices in this life. You know how I know this? Because I'm a YOLO guy, baby. YOLO. You only live once. Don't think, just go for it. When I was 17 years old, uh, I got my first car. It was a 1983 Nissan Pulsar. Go home and look it up. It's about the size of a roller skate. It was awesome. It was a great car. And I was in the church parking lot. I had my window down, and a buddy of mine was standing outside on the pavement just beside my car. And he sat on my window, because my window's down. He sat on my windowsill, and he simply said, drive. Now, YOLO wasn't invented yet. But if it was, you know what I would have said to myself? YOLO. And there would have been an emphasis on the why. You only live once, and it might end right here. So that's what I did. I started driving, and I got up to about 35 miles an hour, and my friend fell off. He rolled like five or six times, and he, and he yelled, I, I, I kid you not, I think I broke my clavicle, um, which is a strange thing to yell when you've fallen off a car. In fact, he did. He broke his, cla- his, broke his clavicle. He broke his, his collarbone. We're lucky he didn't die. Like, I, this is kind of a side note, but I'm just thinking to myself right now, I've, I don't think I've ever told my parents this story, and they listen to the video and the podcast every week. Whatever, YOLO. Um, (laughs) The point is this, that YOLO is a very bad way to make choices. YOLO makes for very hasty and unwise choices. So if you, YOLO people, will exercise a little bit of patience when it comes to life choices, here's what patience allows you to do. It allows you to consider the consequences. It allows you to consider the consequences, to not throw caution to the wind, to not just you know, do whatever you want to do and just go for it and not consider any consequences at all. You know, Camus once wrote that life is a sum of your choices. You are here today because of the choices you made. You are living with consequences of choices. They all have consequences. And patience, YOLO people, gives us time to think. What will this choice mean for me in 24 hours? What will this choice mean for me in 24 days? What will this choice mean for me in 24 weeks, 24 months, 24 years? It allows us to consider the consequences. What impact will this choice have on my life? I see the inevitable consequences, but what about those consequences I can't see? What might happen that I don't expect? Patience gives us time to get those answers and then adjust our choice accordingly, extending the gaps and being patient. Finally, there's the Damach people. Damach. I don't know if you know that word, Damach, but these are the folks that over-spiritualize every choice. Here's what they do. They make whatever choice they want, they pursue whatever they desire, and then they just say that God is in control. Like, 
God called me, God led me, or God really opened a door. God is giving me the desires of my heart, Damach people, the desires of my heart. They over-spiritualize, so they don't have to accept consequences, because if God called them, then God accepts the consequences. Or they over-spiritualize and say, God led me or God called me, so they don't have to listen to wise counsel. Because if God called you, who am I to argue with God? And you just assign uh, God to the situation. Say, here's the choice I'm going to make. Here's what I desire. God is going to give me the desires of my heart. He's leading. He's calling. He's in control. Damach people, stop it. Just stop it. That desires of my heart verse that you're kind of radically misinterpreting, by the way, you're just using it as a defense mechanism to make whatever choice that you want so that no one can push back on you. Listen to me. Yes, of course God can call us to do things. He does that. Yes, of course God leads all the time. Yes, of course he opens doors. But you, you want to know the best way? The best way for God to lead, the best way for God to call you to do something, the best way for God to open a door, the best way for God to give you wisdom. You ready? Ask him. Ask, just ask. Ask him. Look at what James says in James chapter 1. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should what? Say it with me. Ask God. Note, James does not say, figure out what you want to do and then say, you know, that's what God wants for me. That's the desires of my heart, so I'm going to do that, and I'm just going to assign it to God. He says, don't do that. Ask God. And here's the deal. Patience in the decision-making process gives you the time to ask God for the wisdom that you lack. Rather than saying, here's what I want to do, God called, God led, even though he can do that, if you take a step back and you pray and you ask God, yes, he will cultivate desires within your heart and lead you into a wise choice. But he does that when you ask him. And look how James completes this verse. Loves this. I love this. Listen, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Here's what James is saying. God desires to give us wisdom. He desires to lead us into wise choices. It's not about what you want. It's not about some desire that you have in your heart. It's about the best course of action in a particular situation, and God wants to reveal that. He wants to give that to you generously, but we have to ask for it, and patience gives us the time to ask. I want to give you one quick kind of point of application, one quick rule that I learned when I was 14 years old, believe it or not. When I was 14 years old, one rule that I have tried to apply to big life choices to help me exercise patience when it comes to big life choices, to help me pray and ask God for wisdom, to help me ask the question, what if, to help me consider the consequences. It's called the rule of 30. The rule of 30. This isn't in the Bible. It's just something that I've used. It's biblical principles, but it's something that I learned when I was 14 and I've used, and I've, I've not used it all the time. And when I don't use it, I tend to make unwise choices. But when I do, 
when I do use this rule of 30, it tends to give me the patience that I need in order to gain understanding and wisdom. The rule of 30 says this. When you're faced with a big life choice, who do I marry? What job do I take? What city do I live in? Like Cheerios and cornflakes for breakfast. Like that's not a big life choice, okay? The big ones. The big ones. Should I make this purchase? Apply the rule of 30. Take 30 days to pray, 30 days to plan, and 30 days to pursue. 30 days to pray, 30 days to plan, and 30 days to pursue. Take James up and take God up on his offer. Pray and ask God for wisdom. He wants to give generously to you. Set, a, set aside 30 days to do that. Pray. Go ask God. And then once God reveals what that wise choice is, then take 30 days to plan. You can keep that slide up here. Take 30 days to plan. You know what the wise choice is. You've collected facts and experience in order to determine the best course of action. You've brought those things to God. You've prayed. You've been patient. Now take 30 days to plan. 30 days. Don't do anything. Don't act yet. Just take 30 days to plan. This is, again, for the big life choices. If you take 30 days to plan for breakfast, then we're in trouble. Okay? These are the big ones. Okay? Then the last one, once you've prayed and asked God, once you've planned, take 30 days to see it through. Take 30 days to pursue that choice and pursue that decision. It's been very, very helpful for me when it comes to making wise choices in life. And you may ask yourself, Luke, okay, I got it. I want to be patient in my life choices. I know that when I'm faced with a choice, I want to extend those gaps between when I'm faced with that choice and when I actually choose and when I choose and when I act. And I want to apply the rule of 30, 30 days to pray, 30 days to plan, and 30 days to pursue. What do I do in the meantime? What do I do in the in-between time? What do I do while I'm waiting for that wise choice to become clear, while I'm waiting for uh, God's design and direction for my life? What do I do in the meantime? I love this. Listen, here's what you do in the meantime. You do the next right thing. You just simply do the next right thing. I cannot tell you how critical this principle has been in my life and Amy's life when it comes to making really big life choices. Moving from Arizona to Toronto, and I know how to pronounce the word Toronto now. It's not Toronto. It's Toronto, all right? I know how to pronounce that word now. And that was a big life choice. And you know what? We couldn't open up the Bible and say, you know what? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, it says move to Toronto. We, we couldn't. We, that, that's, not, that's not how it works. We had to make a choice. And so we took time to pray and time to plan and time to pursue. We extended the gaps between being presented with a choice and making a choice, between making a choice and acting on that choice. And in the meantime, we simply did the next right thing. You know when you're waiting for God to reveal what that next job, that next vocation, that next thing might be for you? You know the next right thing to do in the meantime? Work hard at your current job. Bloom where you're planted. Be faithful to what God is calling you to do now. And that's what we did. We just simply did the next right thing. We knew God wanted us to continue to be generous, to continue to be faithful, to continue to walk in his grace. So we just simply did the next right thing as we waited for what that wise decision was. 
When it came to adoption, when it came to adopting Kaya into our home, there's no, there's no passage of scripture, there's no chapter and verse that says you should adopt a girl and name her Kaya. Like that doesn't work that way. We had to make a choice. We had to go to God and ask for wisdom and we did. And in the midst of that waiting period, we simply did the next right thing. What's the next right thing? thing. God's word says that his word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Notice that he doesn't say floodlight. Notice that he doesn't say searchlight. He tends to reveal one step at a time. So in the meantime, what's the next right thing for you to do? What's the next right thing? What's the next step? And just take that next step. Have you heard that that term, uh, knowing the ropes, before? Have you heard that before? Uh, if someone knows the ropes, they're, they're experienced. They're knowledgeable. Like someone who's been around church for a while kind of knows the ropes. Or someone who's been around education for a while kind of knows the ropes. Or someone who's been around sports for a while knows the ropes. Do you know that that language is actually nautical language? I didn't know this before we started this series. I, I found this out. That on sailboats, especially big sailboats, there would be miles and miles and miles of rope. So an experienced sailor that knew his boat really, really well was said to know the ropes. That sailor would know every inch of every rope on his boat. He would have facts and experience that he could put together in order to determine the best course of action. Men and women, knowing the ropes in life and making wise choices requires knowing the ropes. It requires being patient. It requires putting your facts and experience together. It requires coming to God and asking for wisdom. It requires, like I said, being patient in order to determine the best course of action. And the Bible wants us to know the ropes and make wise, life-giving choices. As we conclude our time of worship this morning, the worship team is going to come up. Our ushers are going to stand and head towards the back, and they're going to serve us communion this morning. We practice open communion here, open table. That means that if you're not a member here, or you're not a regular attender, you are more than welcome to participate with us in communion this morning. It's for those who follow Jesus. It's for Christ followers. It's for those that call him Savior and Lord. So if that's not you, we just invite you to pass on this part of the service. But for those of you who are Christ followers, we just invite you to reflect and take time to confess any known sin before God, enjoy his forgiveness, and then we'll participate in the communion table together. Uh, this week, I was actually doing some research on the origins of Canadian Thanksgiving, because I'm American, and I kind of know the origins of American Thanksgiving, but I want to know the, the origins of Canadian Thanksgiving. And the, really, the origins of Canadian Thanksgiving go back to kind of a, a, a group of settlers that settled up in the Northern Territories uh, in, a, in the middle of the 16th century or towards the late 16th century. And, and I want you to listen to what, what the preacher pastor who was part of that group of settlers uh, wrote. Maester Wolfall, a learned man, appointed by Her Majesty's Council to be their minister and preacher. That's this group of settlers in the 16th century in the Northwest Territories. Made unto them, or sorry, Northeast Territories. Made unto them a godly sermon 
exhorting them especially to be thankful to God for their strange and miraculous deliverance in those so dangerous places. I love that, strange and miraculous deliverance. They celebrated communion and the celebration of divine mystery was the first sign, scale, and confirmation of Christ's name, death, and passion ever known in all these quarters. Interesting to me that the very first Canadian Thanksgiving was marked with communion. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that interesting? I don't know if it's crazy. It's awesome. It's awesome. The very first Canadian Thanksgiving was marked with communion. And they were encouraged to be thankful to God for all that he's done. Really, communion is that. It's a time for us to be thankful. There's no better way, really, that I can think of to be thankful to God and no better reason to be thankful to God than for his son Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. That's what we're doing today when we take the bread and the cup this Thanksgiving weekend. As our ushers come forward and our band leads us in a song of thanksgiving, kind of got a little bit of pep to it. I like that this morning. Would you pray with me? God, for those in the room that are facing a choice, a big choice, I come on their behalf and ask you for wisdom. God, would you give them clarity in terms of the next right thing? Would you give them clarity in terms of the wise choice? Would you help them to collect their, the facts, the things that they know and their experience and put them together in order, in order to determine the best course of action and take that step that you're calling them to? God, we believe and trust and, and stand on the promise that you give wisdom generously to all without finding fault. So we ask you, Father, to give us wisdom generously. God, in these next moments, as we celebrate and remember, as we say thank you in this time of communion, we prepare our hearts now, think about the cross, confess uh, the sin that we know of, God, and even, even those things that we don't, we bring them to the cross. And we enjoy your forgiveness. And we prepare our hearts now. In Christ's name, amen.